This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, December the 8th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, it's the weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Three topics on deck. The United Nations Climate Summit is going down in Dubai. How optimistic or pessimistic are you after one week of COP28? Coming back to Canada, a New Brunswick Municipal Council has declared a state of emergency citing unprecedented rates of homelessness. It begs the question, what level of government is responsible for addressing issues of homelessness? <laughs> Spoiler alert, they're all responsible. <laughs> and Taylor Swift has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. How do you feel about that? Is there anyone you think is more deserving? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the top story of the day, just like yesterday, it's all about food. Got food on the brain here this time of year. Politicians are encouraging grocery executives to sign on to a code of conduct. Michelle Zadikian explains. Federal Minister Lawrence McCulley and Quebec Minister André Lamontagne say they're disappointed the Grocery Code of Conduct still hasn't launched after years of work. They're also disappointed that supply chain partners are hesitant to move forward with signing on, even though the code is voluntary. The statement by the ministers doesn't name any companies, but Loblaw and Walmart Canada have said they're concerned the code in its current form could raise food prices. At a House of Commons Agriculture Committee meeting today on stabilizing food prices. Walmart Canada's CEO said the company is not in a position at this time to commit. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press. Here's some sound from that parliamentary committee. Loblaw Chairman Galen Weston outlined his concerns about the code. We absolutely will sign the code. We've always said that we would sign the code. Um, we just need to sign a code that doesn't increase uh, the risk of higher food prices to Canadians. And as the code is currently drafted, um, you know, our strong conviction is that it will do so. Walmart's Canada CEO, Gonzalo Gabera, believes that some pricing is out of the company's control. Prices are a function of uh, many variables, right? Uh, and even though... Some parts of the supply chain uh, have been stabilized, uh, not all of them. Uh, there's uh, still uh, inconsistency in the uh, level of production of uh, key commodities in different parts of the world. Another food story to put on your radar this morning. The Public Health Agency of Canada says five Canadians have died and 129 people have been infected with salmonella poisoning in an outbreak linked to cantaloupes. Most of the cases are in Quebec. The outbreak is impacting Americans as well. Brian Clark has the story. 
38 states have now seen cases of salmonella linked to cantaloupes. There have been more than 100 new illnesses in the last week, bringing the total to 230. The FDA has updated the list of recalled cantaloupe products available at stores like Quick Trip, Kroger, Trader Joe's, and Aldi. They all focus on whole cantaloupes from Malachita and Rudy. The CDC's advice, don't eat any pre-cut cantaloupe products if you don't know the brand. Brian Clark, ABC News. Coming back to the world of Canadian politics, gridlock continues in Parliament. The country's official opposition continues to delay government work by forcing all-night votes in the House of Commons. The round of round-the-clock voting on 135 items will likely last until this evening, maybe even into tomorrow. House Leader Karina Gold outlines some of the business being held up. The things that they are objecting to. Support for the RCMP. Support for agriculture, support for Canada Border Services Agency. They are proposing cuts in these objections. NDP MP Charlie Angus feels these tactics are symptoms of something bigger. What's happening in Parliament right now is a very, very dangerous trend. A trend to shut down the work that we do, a trend to intimidate MPs, a, a trend to go after individual MPs who are doing their job. This is the goon squad thuggery that is being practiced by the Polyev Conservatives. You may note that I did not have a clip from Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. Usually I do. I try to do these things with a certain level of balance, but uh, Polyev currently absent from Parliament and these round-the-clock votes because... He has a fundraiser to attend in Quebec. I think you know I typically treat Pierre Polyev fairly, fairly on these uh, segments, but that's just the truth. He uh, is at a $1,700 a plate fundraiser in Quebec instead of voting in the votes that his party is forcing. That's a true man of the people right there. Okay, maybe I'm being... Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, you were asked, have you tried meal delivery kits? 30% of you said yes, 70% of you said no. The numbers themselves, not that interesting, but some of the responses you shared on Twitter, Twitter and Facebook were. Starting with Andrika on Twitter at Accessible Media. Tried them and not a fan. Cons, portions are too small, quality of vegetables isn't that great, and they produce so much waste when it comes to plastic and disposable packaging. Pros, saves time, easy to follow. Joshua tweets in, delicious meals, but a lot of prep work. If you are a person with fine motor skills problems who can't easily chop, slice, dice, etc. Doty tweets in, I've tried them. But the recipes were complicated, and I had to take a lot of time to prepare them. It was a lot of work. Over on Facebook, Robin Rennie comments, Yes, just once. I like the idea, but the meals have too many fancy ingredients. And Pearly Pigtails wrote in, No, they don't work for me in my current living situation. I am just adoring and loving some of the commentary you are sharing on social media. So please feel free to expand beyond the question and share some of your broader thoughts on the daily. Really appreciate you getting involved. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's all about Parasport, but it's also about paywalls. Brock Richardson has been giving you updates from the Para Hockey Cup going down in New Brunswick this week. And one of the things Brock has brought up is that a lot of these games, well, all these games, have been hidden behind a digital paywall. 
even this weekend when the bronze and gold medal games get played on TSN, that's on Canadian cable, but that's still behind a paywall. And it begs this question, how do you feel about para-sport events being behind a paywall, good or bad? Just before I give Elizabeth Moeller an opportunity in on this one, I do want to make mention of the reality that to a certain degree, you have to allow para-sport organizations to try and generate some income, try to generate some money. It, it, it makes sense to a certain degree that for the viability long-term of these sports, you have to occasionally ask the customer to pay something. But this is where I argue with myself. It does create an issue in regards to actually getting the sport to grow and spread. That's where the CBC gem model was amazing during the Parapanam Games. All of these events available for you to stream as you pleased on demand at uh, no cost. You just had to watch some commercials. I, th I think that's the model, at least for now, you still have to go through or maybe using YouTube channels to try and, try and generate some click income. I don't know, but asking the customer to pay at this time. So Elizabeth, I put a pretty big caveat on that one. I understand why there's the temptation to put it behind a paywall, but I think it may impact the long-term growth of the sport for a very short-term gain. Yeah, I agree. You you said much of what I was was reflecting on. I think for sure, especially when we think about you know representation and para sports getting um, the viewership that that it deserves. I worry that a paywall will discourage potential viewers or viewers with disabilities who might want to view it, who might be interested but might not have that ability to pay. So I I'm hopeful that uh, like you said, the gem model or a click model would be another way to get. Uh, revenue to that sport. And I also just think about the fact that like, you know, why are we doing this now when we had such a great model with, with gem? Um, so yeah, I'm not, I feel badly. I to answer your question about the, the paywall for Paris sports yeah. specifically. Laura Bain, I, I'll argue with myself some more here because <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, here's a, <laughs> here's a glimpse into Dave Brown's brain. There's a lot of arguing with myself going on. I also understand that it actually costs quite a bit of money to properly prod broadcast games. You have to pay play-by-play -play guys and color people and cameramen and trucks and distributors. Like there is a cost that comes with broadcasting games. Yeah, I, I I don't know. There are very few people who know less about sports than I okay. do, and I will say are less interested in sports than I am. I, you know, did put a few thoughts together when this question came into my inbox here this morning. So I thought I'll give you kind of like a very layman's perspective. Please, please. I thought on just on the one hand, sure, it makes sense if other sports are behind paywalls. Uh, you know, to me, that makes sense that perhaps this would be as it grows. But then on the other hand, I was thinking about this kind of educational aspect that parasports has for better or worse that other um, sports don't have. And I'm not so concerned about able-bodied people sort of seeing parasports and seeing what's possible for people with disabilities, but more so people who are perhaps newly disabled or new to the community kind of seeing this and knowing that it's a community that they potentially might be able to be part of. And of course, the other piece of it you mentioned is just that people with disabilities are disproportionately um, living in poverty in Canada. So, uh, you know, having some concerns there about people's ability to um, 
kind of watch this thing that might be very important that uh, you may not have access to if you're living on low income. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Thank you both for your perspectives on this question. I want to hear from you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone. 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Audio technical producer Parker Oxtoby this morning was saying, I've been waiting for an opportunity to play a voicemail. So Parker and I started putting our heads together. Oh, maybe the voicemail line's not working. Maybe people are calling in and they're not able to leave a voicemail. So Parker and I sat down together at this desk right here in Studio 7. AMIHQ in North York, Ontario, and we dialed 1-866-509-4545, and the voicemail line is open. So make Parker happy. Call the show with your thoughts on the question of the day. Coming up next, the United Nations Climate Summit is going down in Dubai. How optimistic or pessimistic are you after one week of COP28? This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. When you hear that music, you know two things. That it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And that the weekly news panel is about to get together. In fact, it already started during the commercial break. Uh, They had to literally turn down our microphones as they counted us back in for this segment. So let's welcome into the show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hi, Dave. And hello, Michelle. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So should, should should we scrap the UN Climate Summit and talk about cross-border Just shopping? Just talk about shopping? Done <laughs> yeah. and done. Yeah, talk about retail therapy? No, no, no. I think I think the people want to hear We're us. We're very deep and profound, guys, I swear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the people want to hear us talk about the UN Climate Summit. That's clear. So the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai has been a bit of a mixed bag. Well, let's be generous and call it a mixed bag. COP28 did get a few commitments in the early days around disaster relief for countries affected by climate change, but things have really gotten bogged down as countries debate the future of fossil fuels and, you know, the idea of a petro country, United Arab Emirates, hosting the climate conference. Uh, Joita, what do you want to drill into here? I think um, these con- these climate conferences are gathering spaces for a lot of activists and negotiators to try and hammer out how we get around to um, improving the situation around the climate. And yet, year after year, we have these big conferences, thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people congregate and they come together and they have speeches and they make pledges. 
but how much is actually changing? And I think the really core question here is, you know, do people still feel optimistic or do they genuinely feel pessimistic when such, these conferences come into play? Are people even interested in tuning in? I mean, maybe you're a, a reporter and you're covering this, but do ordinary people find that these conferences mm. uh, resonate with them? And then, of course, as you say very correctly, there's the optics of the whole situation. You've got an oil producing company, country playing host uh, to COP28 and you've got um, I mean, this is true for every year. You've got thousands upon thousands of people flying in and flying out, and these conferences leave behind a massive carbon footprint. So, I mean, there's a certain irony there mm -hmm. as well, if you stop to think about it. So I'm sure we can uh, dive into some of these questions as we go along. Okay, let's start with the scale of the uh, optimism versus pessimism, or maybe right in the middle. <laughs> I don't know if this actually counts as the middle, but like utter ambivalence. Because, Michelle, that's where I'm kind of landing here. I'm kind of landing at the point where I don't need the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, to tell me again that Earth is on its last limb and we're in our dying days and I don't need the fossil fuel companies telling me we are part of the solution. I don't need activists screaming at the fossil fuel companies and then at the end of the day all these countries go back home and then Pierre Polyev can yell about the carbon tax election and in three years the new cap and trade emissions policies <laughs> and the carbon tax and electric vehicles all go out the window. Michelle, all that to say I'm getting a little ambivalent about international climate conferences. Yeah, I, I think I suspect your view is shared by a lot of people. I, honestly, where I land is that I've, I'm more surprised by the fact that there was initial progress than by the fact that things have bogged down. Um, I have always been a little baffled by this model. I would love, love, love one of my like bucket list journalism pieces that needs to exist is how the decisions actually get made when they happen because I, I cannot fathom how these groups of thousands of people are able to reach any kind of consensus or how these deals actually come out when they deal even in conferences that have been productive like paris for instance where there was a concrete deal that has been a guidepost for oh a decade plus now <laughs> uh we keep seeing those commitments getting kicked down the road so even even those conferences that result in some kind of agreements don't necessarily see them acted upon or binding in any way so i yeah i have i think there's a lot of reason to be um to question, if not be outright skeptical of these sorts of conferences, because, yeah, we do hear a lot of the same talking points. But uh, I, I will say that the fact that there was any kind of unanimity early on and that any kind of agreements were reached uh, maybe is caused for me to temper my cynicism a little bit. I don't mm. know. But, uh, yeah, no, I, it's 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 a bit of a dodgy thing. And there's also questions to be raised about the, the composition of so many of these delegations, including Canada's. There were environmental companies, or not companies, but organizations that were sounding the alarm about how Canada has brought more lobbyists to COP28 mm -hmm. than to past COP conferences, mm. uh, lobbyists for the, for the oil and gas sector. So... Uh, these things feel like a bit of a black box to me, I think is where I land. So ambivalence, I think is probably a safe characterization. Oh, okay. So Michelle and I are sharing a little bit of category, a little bit of a safe space there together. Joita, I know that as I laid that out for Michelle, I sound a little facetious, Rolly. I get that. I acknowledge that. I understand that. But I am at this point where all these international agreements are fine and dandy and international negotiations mm -hmm. are fine and dandy. And the Paris Accord is all fine and dandy. But to a certain degree, everybody, un well, everybody understands, I say everybody, <laughs> a chunk of the population understands the urgency of climate change and climate adaptation and the consequences that are going down. But at this point, 
I, it, it's going to boil down to domestic policy. Like, it has to boil down to domestic policy. So there can be the big dog and pony show in Dubai mm -hmm. or in Egypt or wherever. And fundamentally, I'm just going to tell you, like, unless you can actually get concrete policies passed in your own country, and Canada clearly can't do that, then, like, why mm -hmm. should I care about the UN summit? Mm. Oh, I mean, I think you need you need yeah. both, right? It's like any situation yeah. when we talk about housing, for example, and I know we will probably talk about it later, we always sort of come to the conclusion that it requires all three levels of government to buy into housing and or transit. And even with climate, it is very important to have uh, policies passed at the national and provincial levels. But you do need, you do need uh, some sort of international cooperation on the climate question. Um, yeah. It's an un unavoidable reality, but it's just become so overwhelming to see thousands of people congregate like this and to really see the back and forth happening um, and get the sense that we're making progress at a glacial pace um, that it really like one really wonders how effective these conferences are actually proving to be. I mean, yeah, some good things came out of it. Um, the climate compensation fund is sitting at a at a seven hundred twenty million dollars, but I mean that's a fraction of what is actually needed uh, yeah. in, in order yeah. to mitigate. You probably need trillions and trillions of dollars to make that happen. Uh, and wait, wait, really Joy, 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 hit, Joy, hit that number one more time. Seven hundred and twenty million, 20, because that's not very much money. I mean, it's a lot yeah, of money to you it, and me, but it, no. that's it. It's a, it's a lot of money. But like, if you looked at some of the insurance costs of wildfires in Canada this year, that's like not even a fraction of the total economic no. impact of wildfires no. just in Canada, probably just in Alberta in the early part of the wildfire season. Well, that's exactly it. So, I mean, from the point of view of like an average person, give me a $720 million. I'd be happy as a clam, but it's oh, not yes, making too much of a, <laughs> but it's not making too much of a difference to the climate question. And I think that's really where a lot of the frustration with these conferences come in is that we aren't making a lot of progress. Um, you know, but the one good thing to come out of it is that there is more of a discussion about actually seriously phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, fuels. Mm -hmm. You've got 100 and, um, 106 countries signing a declaration calling for a phase out to fossil fuels. But even there, they're trying to water it down. Yeah. Do we talk about a phase yeah. out? Phase or do we talk down. About a phase down. Yeah. Like, what's going on here, guys? So, you know, at this rate, we'll never get anything done. How far have we really gotten to reaching that 1.5 degrees Celsius milestone that we were supposed to reach? I don't know if we're inching any closer to that. So, you know, it is what it is. I think... Um, there's a there's probably economic reasons why these conferences make a lot of sense for host countries to actually like have, but I really question whether they're making as much of a difference to the climate question as they might have originally been conceptualized. Yeah. When I start thinking about it, Juita and Michelle, coming back to you on this one, when I start thinking about it, I think we're past the time of sort of agreeing on goals. And I wonder if these conferences might have to start uh, shifting more into a knowledge sharing scenario. You and I on Monday talked a little bit about the way that healthcare and health and climate change were examined quite extensively on Saturday and Sunday last weekend. Mm -hmm. And that was yeah. really interesting to me. That was a very pragmatic thought Same. about the way in which some Something operates in our society and how maybe some climate change could be impacted or the climate lens could be applied. I would love to see uh, countries that are bringing successful transitions to green energy coming to events like this and showing pragmatic 
tangible, empirical results and saying, here is the roadmap if you want to transition to a greener electricity grid or greener electricity generation, energy generation. I mm -hmm. think we've maybe reached past the point of simply saying, the world is in crisis, let's all figure out a goal. Let's start actually offering people solutions rather than like yeah. just fear mongering. Right. Yeah. I think solutions and concrete action are exactly what most people are looking for. I th I, I agree with you. The, uh, the, the model that, you just, that we have right now, I think, made more sense in the days of, you know, the Kyoto Accord, Paris Accord, further down the road when there was more wiggle room. Now we're talking about implementing huge, ambitious targets in a matter of years. So how do we do that? That's the core question. We need to know how it's done. And I think a knowledge sharing model uh, with some recognition that more some countries have more expertise to impart than others is exactly what we need in that a big objective of these whole of all these conferences is to try and get some buy-in from developing nations and for for more prosperous nations to kind of lead the way and set their targets and and do some of that heavy lifting so i think that would be an excellent way to actually do that is to have those countries that have had some success on that, and it's not, it does not necessarily correlate with the most prosperous nations in this case, but if it does, um, to have those countries be able to share what they know and, and you know, adapt. There, there need to be conversations. People's countries want to adapt their infrastructure based on their individual circumstances, but all these things are a perfect forum for that kind of thing. Yeah, the, the, there's quite literally there, there, there's quite literally a case study out of Central Europe and Western Europe in the last 18 months about an aggressive transition to more renewable and sustainable energy with the cutoff of Russian oil. Like, like there is an actual case study that could have been brought to the table at this COP28 that said this is how we did it. By the way, it cost trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, but there is a case study yeah. that you can look at. And I, and I don't feel, now maybe this is a media criticism, maybe it is being done, but it's easier to cover sort of the, 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 the infighting and the back and forth thing and the murkiness and the muddiness. But I think if there was a real focus, like maybe we don't need to get can together I, for three weeks for these conferences. Can I, can I jump in on that one? I feel like if there was a real focus, the media is desperate for concrete things to sink their teeth into. Yeah. I feel like if those concrete solutions were out there, the media would have been delighted to jump all over that. So I <laughs> yeah. suspect it's not actually happening. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I land too. Well, I've been looking for it. Like, to be frank, I've been looking for it. Because like, yeah. I've been looking for ways to cover COP28 this week that wasn't just infighting and what's the false future of fossil fuels? But like, that is the narrative coming out of Dubai right now. Uh, Joita, let's let's get to the ironies here. You brought up the ironies. Petrostate, air travel. I'm kind of at the point where I feel like this is sort of talking points for people who want to poo-poo uh, these kinds of conferences and even though I might be ambivalent I'm not outright poo-pooing them so I'm not really worried about reconciling the ironies but how about you yeah I think I mean you can't really you can't really have meaningful change around the climate without buy-in from the oil producing states that's just a, a fact an unpleasant and unpalatable fact but I mean sure you could have a climate conference that is restricted to non-oil producing countries getting together and um virtue signaling about how great they are and saying, oh, look, we're not we're not polluting the environment, we're not contributing to climate change, but how much good is that actually going to do? So yes, you do need buy-in from the oil producing company uh, countries. Uh, but then you've got um then you've got these really embarrassing situations cropping up where the chair of the conference, who's a a, a sultan at the in in UAE, turning on and saying, Well, I don't know if there's really a lot of science to back up 
<laughs> climate true. change That's and true. the yeah. linkages between oil production and having to walk those comments back. And you start to think, okay, well, hang on a second. What is going on here? So there are inherent contradictions, and yet you, you, it's a bitter pill to swallow. You kind of have to just deal with the fact that without yeah. the oil-producing states at the table, we're not really going to make a lot of headway on the on the climate question. And the other thing is, you know, you were talking earlier about the knowledge producing model. I think that's a good point. But also maybe we need to take a sober second look at how many people actually need to be at these conferences. I mean, I am yeah, it's fair. Well for democracy, totally. but I would be hard pressed to think that you need tens of thousands of people to make a decision about the climate. A lot of these um, conferences run simultaneously with things like film festivals and what have you. So it's like a, almost a bit of a party. And you have to really question whether you need all the bells and whistles. Maybe it's time that, yes, we do knowledge sharing, but we also maybe just restrict ourselves to negotiators from the governments, people who have actually got the ability to make decisions and implement policy changes. So I just a thought that, you know, as much as I love a, a party, as much as the next person, maybe tens of thousands of people congregating at, at once isn't required to make changes for the climate. Yeah, Michelle, I think Joet is onto something there. If you really mm-hmm. want to reconcile some of these ironies, you might be looking at smaller invoices because because you you can't cut totally. out petro yep. states, right? Because by the way, if you're cutting out petro states, Canada can't go either. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I totally agree. I feel like the optics of of having it seem like a party are more troubling than the optics of having a host country be a petro state or the optics of requiring air travel because I feel like that's inevitable. No matter where this is hosted, some people are going to need to fly in. That's just the way travel is set up these days. It really they, can't be they helped. Can't, they can't just take Greta Thunberg's uh, fiberglass boats? We can't just have <laughs> people cruising around on that? Right? Yeah, no, it was shocking, but no. Um, and and. and we do know there's there are differences between virtual and, and in-person gatherings. We, we, we've oh, all yeah. sort of seen that difference oh, yeah. over time. So, yeah, I, I don't is, – is it ideal that there's a lot of air travel involved? No, but I don't think it's it's anything you can avoid at this stage. And, yes, to, to Joey, I'm totally with you. To me, the optics of having more of that kind of festive atmosphere, of having these very, very bloated seeming uh, – again, perhaps there's – more methods going on here in the background that I'm aware of, but it, it does seem like very bloated delegations. You got to wonder what exactly everyone is doing there. Those optics bother me a whole lot more than any of the other things that were raised. Okay. Yeah. Let's uh, put climate change to bed uh, for, for, for now. Uh, believe me, it will come back. Oh, there's, there's two more news panels between now and the end of the year. And I feel like climate yeah, exactly. change <laughs> is going to rear its head again, probably in our year in review uh, panel on December the 22nd or whatever the last day of broadcast is. I, time's a flat circle. I can't keep that. sounds right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. But coming up next, another uh, somber topic. A New Brunswick Municipal Council has declared a local state of emergency, citing unprecedented rates of homelessness. It begs the question, what level of government is truly responsible for addressing issues of homelessness? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News panel on AMI-tv. I am Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Let's address our next 
topic. A New Brunswick Municipal Council has declared a state of emergency, citing unprecedented rates of homelessness and the death of an unhoused resident. The declaration by the Municipal District of St. Stephen takes specific aim at the provincial government. It says the government has failed in its duties to house and care for the citizens of St. Stephen's. The declaration says there are roughly 70 homeless people in the town, and it calls on Premier Blaine Higgs to use part of the province's budgetary surplus to fund a solution. One last little piece of context here. The population of St. Stephen's is a little over 4,000. So just to give you some context, 70 people experiencing homelessness in a town of about 4,000 people. I'll let you sort of do the proportionary math as you please on that. Michelle, what strikes you about this topic? Lots of things struck me about this topic. Um, the, the, the whole issue of declar declaring a state of emergency is one I've always kind of circled around a little bit. And this is a, a use of that term and that approach that we're not really accustomed to seeing. We, we often hear about states of emergency being invoked when there's drinking water crises. We've seen it invoked in First Nations communities when mental health crises seem to be ratcheting up a few notches, like when there's been a, a rash of, of suicides or something like that in a community. Um, but usually we think of states of emergency as being tied to something very concrete, like a, like a hurricane or, or a flood or something like that. Um, or, or something like a boil water advisory. Um, this is a different sort of approach, uh, and it it itself is an interesting approach and strategy to invoke in a case like this, especially given the fact that proportionally we're not talking about a huge number of people, but there's an argument to be made that there's a, there should be a zero tolerance for for homelessness, and this community is trying to get on top of that. So I'd love to hear the panel's group thoughts on that. Uh, but there's also issues of who is accountable for homelessness, uh, who really is the one responsible for trying to limit that situation to whatever degree possible. And a whole other sub-thread, if we want to go there, is the the response that's come from the province on this has been outright dismissive. A cabinet minister came back and said, I intend to write back to the mayor and remind him of what a definition of a state of emergency is. Um, so that kind of circles back to questions of accountability, is there seems to be a, a, a very dismissive attitude to some of the concerns that are being raised, but also questions about whether that is the right forum through which to raise them. So let's get to that mm -hmm. first thread, the idea of declaring a state of emergency. By the way, you don't need to go that far down the road from Toronto to see a different city that tried this approach earlier this year. Hamilton, Ontario did it. So there have mm -hmm. been a few municipalities mm -hmm. who've said, hey, we have a people experiencing homelessness issue and we're going to declare it a state of emergency because we want the province to address this and we want resources to address this specifically. Mm -hmm. That said, Michelle, reading between the lines of your opening thought there, I do think we've cheapened the notion of state of emergency. I think that there probably is a better phrasing or there should be a better mechanism, but Joita, sometimes declaring a state of emergency is all a municipality has at their fingertips. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yes, of course, you can declare a state of emergency for a flood or a forest fire or what have you, contaminated water, but... Um... Yeah, I think sometimes it's the only tool that a municipality has at its disposal, the only way to leverage more resources on a, on the problem of homelessness. So if you think about a population of 4,000 and 70 people are homeless, um, that's about 2% uh, of the population, give or take. Just using a quick mental math here. And um, I think the other piece to, to think through here is, was the town of St. Stephen actually equipped with a homeless shelter? 
And I am given to understand that they did not have a homeless shelter ready to go, uh, that there's been some wrangling about finding a space and whether that was suitable for a homeless shelter. So it's not just about the numbers of homeless people, but also thinking about whether the municipality in question had at its disposal the short-term solutions and resources that are needed to deal with an underhoused or unhoused population. And if they don't, especially with winter around the corner, then yes, there is a degree of seriousness that encroaches into the question. Um, could you make the argument that they're using the emergency measures, uh, declaring a state of emergency uh, too, too, just too often? Maybe, but at the same time, I don't know if we have enough conversations nationally about when we talk about homelessness and we talk about housing. I don't know if we have enough conversations about the realities of being homeless or underhoused in rural communities or even in small towns, because the Torontos and the Vancouver's and the Ottawa's of the world are very different from a place like St. Stephen. And I don't know if the St. Stephen's of this country are getting on the map in terms of the national mm -hmm. conversation about housing and homelessness. Well, I think that's a great it. point there. People think yeah. about homelessness as an issue that only impacts cities and it doesn't. And the proportionality I think matters here, right? Even if I'm going to say that if everything is a state of emergency, then nothing is a state of emergency, not to overly rely on a cliche. That said, there are probably 5,000 people who live on my block here in Toronto, right? Like, if you like, if you take my walk to work, I probably walk by about the residencing of 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. If I encountered 70 people experiencing homelessness on my walk in the morning, I would be horrified, and I would call that emergen an emergency, Michelle. Yeah, that, that's extremely fair, and Joanna raises such a good point, is that so much of the homelessness and even housing conversation around uh, nationwide does seem to center on urban centers. There is a very strong urban-rural divide. We've talked about that, how that manifests in so many different ways on this panel, but I think that's a really important one, is that these are... St. Stephen is not rural, but it is a smaller community. It's definitely a smaller municipality than the ones where most of these conversations are centered. And you're right. I think the proportion is, is interesting when you put it in that context, Dave, but like I said earlier, I think there are some governments that would argue that you ought to be striving for zero as a homelessness target and proportionality or not having 70 people unhoused and, and one person dying, at least one person dying with more expected as the weather cools down is something that needs to be addressed right away. So I, I can, I, I can understand where they're coming from, but I also kind of agree with you, Dave, that a lot of the issue boils down to what tools municipalities have at their disposal. Uh, we know I could geek out about municipal affairs indefinitely, so I won't. Um, but it does come back to some other questions that we've raised on this panel before of how much power should municipalities have in many cases they are uh, beholden to the provinces where they are based and i think that's a lot of what we're seeing here is is not only genuine interest in tackling the homelessness issue but a bit of a pushback in the fact that the hands are tied on a number of core issues that directly impact their existence well, well, that the jurisdictional side of it is important, especially because the province's response yeah. was, oh, only one person died. Someone dies in a car crash every day. We don't have a driving crisis in this country. Uh, I, so and Yes, that is literally what the minister said. That is yes. quite literally, quote for quote, what the minister said. And that, but it matters. In the majority of the country, municipalities are at the mercy of provinces. Provinces essentially run municipalities, for the most part. There are a couple exceptions here and there, but for the most part, provinces have jurisdiction over the city. 
Which, to me, Joita, does beg the very reasonable question of who actually is responsible for addressing the homelessness issue. Because you can kick down responsibility to the city all you want or the municipality mm. all you want, but if you don't give them resources, it's kind mm. of on you. Now, that said, here, here's Dave uh, putting his ear up like Hulk Hogan, waiting for the crowd to cheer. All levels of government are responsible for this. Every <laughs> single politician yeah. in the country is responsible for this, but if you're making me pinpoint it's the province yeah i think you've nailed it i i think it's every level of government but especially the province especially when the province might be running a surplus and then you've got a, the town of saint Stephen saying hang on we've got 70 homeless people and someone's just died and we don't have a shelter um and i think uh, that's the other piece where the province becomes really vital to this conversation um uh, partly one of the things the benefits of, of having an emergency are declared is you can say to the province well you've got the surplus give us more money so we can deal with this problem in a satisfactory fashion but you can also say look we um I, I believe part of the conversation here was also about the back and forth about a shelter space um and that the province actually needs to sign off on a space for a new shelter, and the province has not yet done so. So it's not just about handing over money, but also recognizing that if you look at a lot of the zoning requirements and uh, how you get permits and 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 who sign and, and approvals for things like shelters, and by no means are shelters the solution to housing. They're stopgap, but mm -hmm. even there, you need. Uh, the province to buy in and the province to work rapidly to establish the permissions and the zoning and the other requirements before you can get shovels in the ground and uh, and put that shelter in place. So I think there is a very close relationship between the province and municipality uh, across Canada. It's a well-established fact, and it's really disheartening to hear some of the, the truly dismissive uh, uh, response from the province. And, you know, just from a media standpoint, you got to wonder who was giving them advice on the PR file there, because, you know, what could have been a small story <laughs> became a really big story because of the province's re response and the lack of compassion uh, that came across. And, you know, it's it's um, it's also worth noting that homelessness costs a lot more money than housing first solutions. Like if you actually think about the the cost that that the province might incur in dealing with homeless people, whether it's people ending up in hospitals, whether it's people ending up in prisons, whether it's people ending up in other mm -hmm. places because mm -hmm. they don't have yeah. a place to go, the province does end up paying for those things. And there's a lot of research that says that if you just build the housing, even if you just build a shelter, it's actually cheaper and better for the province to do that. Uh, with the municipality's cooperation, of course, than to rely on things like jails and prisons and, and hospitals as a way for people to actually have a roof over their head. And when winter comes around the corner, it really changes our conversation here in Canada because it can be punishing in many parts of the country yeah. to not have a place oh, to stay. The vast majority, like the, the vast majority of the country, like there's pretty much nowhere to hide because even the warmer places are still quite cold and very precipitation heavy. Uh, one more piece of context here before I give you last word, Michelle. You are right. I said the word rural before. I shouldn't have said rural. Uh, the town of St. Stephen is about 90 minutes south of Fredericton. So it might be small, but it's not exactly remote. It's not some remote community. And remembering that Fredericton is the provincial capital of New Brunswick, you know, it's mm -hmm. almost like... It 
in, in Toronto terms, that's pretty much a suburb of Fredericton. It's basically uh, Mississauga. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but, in, but in, you know, New Brunswick terms, it is a little bit different. It's a little bit, if there's, there's quite a bit of green space between Fredericton and St. Stephen. But Michelle, it all begs, it all begs that question about jurisdiction and responsibility. Listen, it, like it's the pro, like fundamentally it's the province, but really it's everybody. Yeah, agreed. But I, I land largely where you and Joita do in terms of the province's being the, the the primary leader on this. I won't rehash what you said, but I will just add to Joita's really excellent point about the knock-on effects of not addressing homelessness. All those areas that she mentioned that are affected by this, jails, um, not federal prisons so much, but jails for sure, hospitals for sure, all those also fall under provincial jurisdiction. So it really is all shockingly tidy in terms of how it plays out. All of these things have direct impact on the province. They all fall within that jurisdiction. We absolutely need buy-in from all concerned municipalities when they are given the proper tools to address things need to take that kind of action and actually use those tools. But I ultimately agree with you that the province is the place where the book ultimately will have to stop. Fundamentally. All right. Thank you for bringing this topic to the table, Michelle. Coming up after the break, lightening the mood a smidge, I hope, maybe. Taylor Swift has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. What do you think? Is there anyone who you think is more deserving of this title? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic to discuss. 2023 was hardly a cruel year for Taylor Swift. Magazine has named Taylor Swift its Person of the Year. Forbes Magazine, by the way, named Tay-Tay the fifth most powerful woman in the world. That's pretty good. Other nominees for Person of the Year, Hollywood Strikers, Chinese President Xi Jinping, OpenAI founder Sam Altman, the Trump prosecutors, Barbie, Russian President Vladimir Putin, King Charles III of Britain, and Jerome Powell the head of the Federal Reserve in the United States. Joita, what do you think of Taylor Swift being named Person of the Year? Um, at the risk of seeing a bit unprofessional. Are you kidding me? Are you, do you think like, Taylor Swift is the Person of the Year? I, you know, I went and looked up what the criteria was, and it was either a person, idea, event, what have you, that accumulated that that had the biggest influence on the events of the year. And I am hard pressed to think of an, a year where we've had so much international global conflict that the thing that was the most influential the world over or has the greatest impact globally is a pop star who, you know, regardless of what you think of her music, 
basically had a boatload of concerts, uh, had everybody queuing up uh, to buy tickets that were often astronomically priced, and who has come away from that whole situation having made a truckload of money. I'm sorry, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting why she's the person of the year. And all I can say is this is a cynical attempt by Time Magazine to boost circulation. I'm sorry, not buying it. Okay, you know what? I think <laughs> I think that sets the table nicely, and that's good because I get to play devil's advocate a little bit because I do share some of your cynicism, and I'll get to Time Magazine in a second, and I'll get to media criticism in a second. Don't you worry, Joita. But I do think there's at least some merit to the case in terms of being a cultural touchstone yeah. that meant something yeah. to a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's yes, the concert was the biggest concert series uh, in America this year. Globally, the concert sales are monstrous. Number one streamed artist on Spotify. There is certainly uh, the uh, surge of Taylor Swift into the football world, and whether you like it or not, it's the second most popular sport in the world, maybe third, but in North America, it is number one by a mile. So there's been a cultural touchstone in sports as well. I think the fact that Taylor Swift has also done a lot of revenue sharing with people who work for her is a story that's gone underreported. The number of her staff and truck drivers and blue collar people who helped put her show together getting $50,000, $100,000 bonuses at the end of the tour showed a little bit of something that showed a pop star that has a bit of a deeper sense of an economic commitment to the people who've helped her along the way for success. And I also think you cannot leave out the women's empowerment work she's done, whether it's openly grappling with politicians on the issue of abortion or actually helping create get out the vote movements in various states, not just in the United States, but around the world. So, I, Joita, I'm only playing devil's advocate because I've, I've got some criticism to offer here about this. But, Michelle, that's me making the case for Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'll add one dimension to your case to well, it's more of a case for why she's a fascinating figure, and I'll come back to this. And among all the other things she's done that you mentioned, she's also been an interesting trailblazer in terms of how to maintain some artistic control over your career. Uh, one mm. could argue that she can only do that because of the platform she occupies and how prominent a figure she is, but that's a whole incidental thing. So. Is there a good, strong, in my opinion, is there a good, strong case to be made for why Taylor Swift has become one of the most powerful people in the world? I don't argue with that characterization. And I'd say, yes, I do find that all that stuff quite interesting. But when I come back to person of the year, this is where I, I uh, share a lot more of Julia's take. I'll start by saying that I, I personally think the list that you read off to me, that struck me as a really weak list. I was not that impressed with the vast majority of the picks on there. And in that context, maybe Taylor Swift's. Uh, by the way, that's not my list. That's not my list. That's time short no, list, no, no, by no, the way. No, no to totally, totally. But like in the context of that list, I think it's even easier to make the case for Taylor Swift. But in Joita's right. There's so much else going on in the world. Taylor Swift's relevance and newsworthy value only really applies to a few countries, some highly privileged demographics. There is so much else going on right now. I really am also kind of baffled by the situation and by this decision, even as I get it. Okay. But I feel like positioning it in a broader frame of context might have changed the outcome.
Michelle, I'm going to stay with you here. You didn't like the list. You All didn't right. necessarily like the person who was named. There actually are two people on this list who I think could be uh, nominees, but I think it's actually I've more about one. the idea they represent. I would say Sam Altman and OpenAI, mm -hmm. the artificial intelligence conversation more broadly this year, is one totally. that I think, like, if you want to call it artificial intelligence the person of the year, even though, once again, media criticism, I think AI has been covered rather poorly by the mass media, but I do, think, I do, think, it's been, I do think it's been a very interesting year on the AI front. And I also do believe Jerome Powell and more broadly inflation um, and cost of living, you could apply that lens in a lot of places, but it's fair to say that the uh, American Central Bank, uh, the Federal Reserve, is sort of one of the big driver on these decisions. But there were places like Argentina where, where inflation was still 100% year over year this year. So I still think you could make an argument for global inflation. But Michelle, sorry, I long preambled you there. You either didn't like the list or you want to go off the list. List. Who would you name? Who would you who would yeah, you pick? I, I'm with you entirely on Sam Altman. That to me was the strongest pick. And my ultimate pick for person of the year, since it does not have to be a person, would have probably been AI or Chat GPT if you wanted to get more specific. That to me has had massive global ramifications that we're only barely beginning to understand. To me, that I can make that case much more compellingly than for Taylor Swift. Um Jerome Powell, I think that makes sense within a strictly American context, but um, I, I tend to prefer to see figures with broader impact and more global impact favored in these sorts of things. So, um, as always, context matters, but AI <laughs> would have been really like, honestly, that, that's in a world where Barbie makes the list and AI doesn't, I, yeah. I don't, I don't well, get well, that. Well, AI Sorry. sort of, but AI, I think AI makes the list via Sam Altman. I, th I think that's sort of how they do it. And but that's like, where, again, but again, way to miss the point. Sam Altman is not a household name. ChatGPT is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think you're right on the Jerome Powell thing. I think if you said, for example, say central banks were the person of the year or, to better. Or Christine broadly, Lagarde yeah, or like, yeah. Monetary like, policy. Let, 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 yeah. yeah. Or let's not say Tiff Macklem though. You, you know where I land on Tiff <laughs> Macklem. Uh, you got to be quick on like who you would either take on this board or off this board because I do want to engage in a little media criticism with you as well because I think you and I are on a similar page here. Yeah, well, I think maybe I was actually leaning towards the Trump prosecutors or or maybe Barbie actually just given the global reach of that film and how that was also feminist criticism. But I'm not super sold on either of them, to be honest with you. And we we don't really talk about it very much, but there is a major conflict in the Middle East and that has had massive reverberations. Uh, globally. Yeah. Um, and maybe having someone associated with that conflict might have been a time person of the year. The problem is, and, and I'll just make a quick note about this, I think often people perceive the time person of a year as an endorsement, uh, which is not the case. Uh, like Stalin was once time person of the year. And I was like, come yeah. on, give me a break, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's what makes this pick even more contentious because people often walk away with the impression that this is an an, an, an endorsement and Taylor Swift might have been the less, the least politically <laughs> yeah. charged. And that's why she ended up on top. But Joita, people are stupid. And I've, and I've stopped, I've stopped worrying about how like the general population and stupid people uh, perceive these lists. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people do perceive these lists and the Time magazine at one point had a massive reach, but I think now it's become more of a legacy piece. I mean, it's around since totally. the 1920s. We've all had the Time person of the year, uh, at least in our in our lifetimes. I don't know if it's really that much of I don't know if it's really a big deal anymore. Yes. I, mean, I don't know if people really 
hang their hats on this one too much. Right. So, so that's the yeah. me that's the media criticism, and that's where I'll say, like, even though I can make the case for Taylor Swift, I worry that many, many, many media institutions are perpetually trying to grab grab low hanging fruit and naming Taylor Swift Person of the Year. Oh, we're going to sell a bunch of magazines to Swifties, or we're going to get a bunch of clicks, and we're going to get the now news panel to talk about this. I mean, frankly, like we probably would have talked about it anyway. We definitely talked about Elon Musk last year. I believe it was last year Elon Musk was Person of the Year. It might have been two years ago. I, Time is a flat Zelensky circle. Solinsky was last year. Uh, was last year. Uh, right, Elon yes. Musk was the yeah. year before. Uh, Time is a flat circle. I, I struggle with these things. But but suffice to say, I do worry about the cheapening of this. Like I worry about perpetually looking for the low hanging fruit, lowest mm -hmm. common denominator kind of nomination here, as opposed to like really grappling with like the broader the broader issues. And the other thing is, all of a sudden, people are going to start blaming Taylor Swift, right? Like people people in the football world are already blaming her for being on their football broadcast too much when it's the broadcasters who are showing Taylor Swift over and over and yeah. over again during during movies. But, you know, Joita, it's always easier to blame a woman than blame the system. Yeah, and that too. But also, I, I think <laughs> there is an argument being made that Taylor Swift might seek a political office, uh, which I don't know how much, you, how much story oh, you put boy. in that. Um, <laughs> but uh, the one thing, the one good thing is that it has really like ticked off the alt-right and everyone's getting in a huge frenzy about the fact that Taylor Swift was made person of the year. So yes, low hanging fruit it is, but anything that gets the alt-right mad, I'm Okay. <laughs> any, 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 another stop on the culture war is good for everybody involved. Uh, Michelle, Juita, have a great weekend, both of you. Juita, take care. Thank you. Thank you. Michelle, I'll talk to you on Monday morning. Well, no, I won't. Alex Smythe will talk to you on Monday morning. Uh, okay, take care. Sounds good. I good will be recovering from a lovely Sunday in Buffalo, New York. That's Michelle McQuig, a weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Enjoy a good regional news update. And then uh, Brock Richardson will look ahead to a busy week in Paris. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I am Dave Brown. You are you. It's Friday, December the 8th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the disability holiday market is taking place this Sunday in Toronto. Nathan Sartore tells you all about it. And holiday-themed programming is taking over the airwaves, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> Greg David tells you what TV specials to catch before the end of the year. Even I've been dragged into a couple holiday movies here at the last little bit. I watched one on Amazon Prime last weekend called Xmas. It was okay. It was funny. And uh, my cousin has a uh, holiday movie coming up uh, next week which I'm super excited about. Maybe I'll even get him to come on the show and tell you about it. I'll use my big fat Rolodex to get my cousin on the show and cross promo his stuff. Uh, we'll see, we'll see. Let's start the hour with the regional news updates. Beginning in the territories, the Northwest Territories have a new premiere. Lisa Laporte has the results. Hay River North Legislature member RJ Simpson won on the second round of voting. Simpson, who was first elected to the legislature in 2015, had previously held the education, culture, employment and justice portfolios. 
Northwest Territories has a consensus-style government, whereby members run as independents before choosing a premier and cabinet members from amongst themselves. Simpson replaces former Premier Caroline Cochran, who announced in September that she wouldn't run for re-election. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Over to British Columbia, B.C. Premier David Eby is touting his government's housing policies. The New Democrats passed a series of housing-related bills this fall, including restrictions on short-term rentals, allowing more density on single-family lots, loosening building-permitting processes, and increasing housing density in public transit areas. Eby points out how critical housing is to the overall economy. Uh, the construction workers, the skilled trades workers, uh, if they cannot afford to live in our province because of housing, business can't be successful and we can't deliver the services that we need to for people. Doing nothing on housing is not an option. Premier UB expects that 293 housing units could be built in the next decade as a result of these policies. Over to the prairies, Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe says he'll keep his election promises despite a big jump in the government's deficit. Canoe says a promised one-year freeze on hydroelectric rates will be delivered, but not immediately. We've disappointed a new board, so we want the board to come up with a multi-year uh, forecast and financial plan for hydro. Likely that'll be a three-year uh, time horizon. Once we get that planning, then I think we'll be able to drill down into that election commitment. Canoe says details will come next week on how the government plans to tackle a deficit that's now projected at $1.6 billion. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, you've been all over the Para Hockey Cup this week that's been taking place in New Brunswick. No real news developments between yesterday and today, but you at least want to give a little bit of a setup on what's on deck this weekend. Yes, so the um, as you mentioned, it's taking place uh, this weekend, and we know that uh, the semifinals are taking place uh, today, and so we'll see what happens, but I suspect that Canada will be... Uh, playing the u.s that's just my wait wait brock brock you gotta pause here for a second what are the semifinal matchups the semifinal matchups are um china versus uh canada and then czechia versus uh the united states of go. which both i would suspect canada and the u.s <laughs> will meet each other that's heavy favorites my, my heavy, analysis yeah, heavy, on this one but heavy heavy favorites on that one i don't know if the sports fans in las vegas are taking action on this one but you're probably giving away a lot of juice if uh, you're yeah. betting on canada and the u.s right yeah uh the, the both the uh, bronze medal games and gold medal games will be on tsn5 uh check your local listings for channel because i don't know what rogers is doing nowadays with everybody in different uh places but tsn5 is your place uh 6 p.m eastern is the gold medal game and then 2 p.m eastern is the bronze medal game the semifinals are available for you but as a reminder this is a paid uh thing on hockeycanada.ca so look forward for that uh yeah. this 
this weekend. The semis behind a paywall, hockeycanada.ca. Uh, but as you mentioned, TSN 5 for the games tomorrow, the uh, the championship games and the medal round games. Uh, TSN 5, worth noting that if you have a TSN subscription, whether it's through Rogers or Bell or whoever your cable provider may be, TSN 5 is sort of an extension of all the TSN channels. So if you have even one TSN, if you have TSN 1, you will have the other four TSN, the other three TSNs. It's only TSN 2 that's a secondary paywall. So if you have the basic TSN, even if you're locally not getting TSN 5 as your local TSN, you should have that a little bit further down the dial. And if you do have TSN through your cable subscriber, you will be able to log in online to the TSN direct subscription as well with your uh, cable uh, login credentials. So if you have TSN as a channel, you should be able to get your eyes and ears on these championship games tomorrow. Speaking of championship games tomorrow, Brock, the NBA in-season tournament is coming to an end. You and I touched on this at the end of the round robin phase about our overall level of interest. And you and I were both a little bit somewhere in the middle, not quite feeling it. But this week ended up being the playoff week for the in-season tournament. The final set tomorrow between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Indianapolis Pacers, or Indiana Pacers, I should say, which is a compelling game enough. But Brock, having lived through the actual playoffs of the in-season tournament this week, where are you landing on the tournament now? So I'm going to use the example of the NCA uh, March Madness. When we have that tournament, it's usually the first couple of rounds that are like gangbusters and everybody's there's upsets everywhere. In in the NBA in-season tournament, it was the reverse. It was the Eh, not so interested in the round robin, and now we're interested in the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. Would I look? I I love the fact that the Indiana Pacers are where they are. Would the NBA call it a success? Uh, I I guess so. I yes. would think that they would. Yes, they're the Brock. They did a million. They did a million viewers on the Monday night game between Indiana and Boston, going against Monday night football. That's a massive Monday night number for an NBA basketball game in the middle of the regular season. Yeah, for sure. And I think I I'm not sure that this is the matchup that they would have dreamed up, but hey, it's a it's a matchup that is that is compelling nonetheless. And I, and I, <laughs> Brock, I mean, one side of it's LeBron James, like maybe the greatest basketball player of all time, and the LA Lakers, the second biggest media market in the country. Like like I I think they're pretty happy with at least one side of this. Yeah, for sure. I I just think they didn't necessarily expect as did a lot of us Indiana uh, to be there. And I think LeBron, it seems to be in this mode of, I'm going to do my thing here. I'm going to, I'm going to play well. I mean, he had 30 plus points uh, yesterday and really played well. And again, one of the interesting notes that came out of yesterday's game from his side of things was he'd never been in a final four situation on the NCAA side of things, which is really kind of an interesting thing. So I think he's kind of really lavishing in the moment of, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to give myself to this, tournament and I think that's the whole takeaway that I would say as a broader look I think these NBA players really did invest themselves in this tournament and I wasn't sure when we first came into it whether they would or they wouldn't but they are which is really nice to see there are 13 active players on the Indiana Pacers roster 10 of them make less than $3 million a year. Now, listen, I'm hardly going to cry poor for an athlete who makes $3 million a year or less than $3 million a year. That's a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of pro sports, $3 million a year, especially in the NBA, is not that much. The winning team of this tournament 
each player on the team, regardless if they're a star or a scrub or the 13th player on the bench, is going to receive a check for $500,000. If you're, and you could tell this week as Indiana kept going on and advancing in the tournament, the guys at the end of their bench were going ballistic because $500,000, if you're making a million bucks a year, is a huge, huge bonus. It's a life-changing amount of money, even within the context of the season. So the money is motivating the back end of the bench. The competitive nature is in, is is motivating the front end of the bench. And players all over the league came out this week. The eight teams involved in the quarterfinals, pretty much without fail, came out and endorsed this tournament, including Kevin Durant, who publicly in the summer said, this is a bad idea, I hate this idea. In the press conference on Tuesday night after his team got knocked out, after Phoenix got knocked out by the Lakers, said, I am loving this. What a great idea by the league. So the players have bought in, fans are watching, the media bought in, and I think tomorrow at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time in Las Vegas is going to be a darn compelling basketball game. Yeah, I, I would agree, and I think that, you know, players, they Indiana's not a team that you would say, Listen, they they have an NBA championship written all over them. I wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. Not a lot of people would say that. But now we're here. Now they're playing against the LA Lakers, and sure, they they can give them a run. I I would predict that the LA Lakers will probably win tomorrow. But but hey, Indiana, this could be their championship for all intents and purposes. So they could just finish the job and say, no, we we've gone you know, guns a-blazing for this tournament. Let's finish the job. So I'm very fascinated for that reason to kind of see, okay, Indiana, now you're here. What are you going to show us? It might also be a precursor, right, that Indiana might not have been an NBA champion uh, prediction at the front end of the season to actually win the NBA title, but a huge core of that roster is under 22 years old. So what this might actually be is a precursor to the future, a glimpse of the old, the LeBron James and the Anthony Davises of the world for the Lakers, players who've won MVPs and been in the league for, in LeBron's case, two decades, in Anthony Davis's case, uh, over a decade. What you're looking at now is this is the future. So, so this tournament has proven to be very compelling, very interesting for any cynicism I had about it. Well done by the NBA for putting together something a little bit different and trying something new. So well done by the NBA. Okay, Brock, let's turn to the world of professional football. There's a bunch of interesting games on Sunday, but there's one that you have circled and I think the majority of the football world has circled at 4 p.m., just after 4 p.m. Eastern time. The Buffalo Bills will be visiting the Kansas City Chiefs with some uh, pretty significant implications on the line. In my mind, this is a must-win game for the Buffalo Bills. They are a 500 team. They are six and six as we sit here. They need to get things going in the latter part in the last five games of the season. They really need to put this all together if they have any hopes of making the playoffs in any way, shape, or form. But then on the Kansas City side, I looked up this morning and it's like, oh yeah, they also have. You know, four losses. You know, they're obviously uh, above 500, but it's it's a it's a game where both teams have implications. So, what you should see is two teams coming out there with things to prove. I want to see does Patrick Mahomes look like Patrick Mahomes that we expect? Because there's been some games where you kind of go, "What happened here? This 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 game or that game or the in the four games that they lost?" You know, and I and I think unfortunately for my Buffalo Bills, I think Kansas City is going to come out and say. No, no, no. Nights try Buffalo. We're we're here. We're gonna do this. 
my bet would be that Kansas City does pull this one away as much as it hurts me as a as a Bills fan but I think Kansas City has more to prove to themselves because they really shouldn't have four losses to their name this year in my opinion uh, some people might argue they don't deserve some of the eight wins they had they've uh, been lacking offensive production all year Patrick Mahomes their quarterback Kansas City Chiefs quarterback multiple time MVP multiple time Super Bowl winner having a really good statistical season in most passing categories he's in the top five or top three in the league and it's still one of the worst years of his career. It, it kind of is a reminder about what it means to be an elite player, to be sort of the gold standard. And if you aren't the gold standard, if you fall even just a sliver below to the silver standard or the bronze standard, you can really see where teams fall apart on you, especially in the NFL, in a salary cap league where your quarterback is taking up a third of your salary cap. It's tough to build depth around them. Brock, enjoy a good weekend in sports. Talk to you on Tuesday. Indeed you will. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. The Disability Holiday Market is taking place a Sunday in Toronto. Nathan Sartore tells you all about it. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Disability Collective and the Wagner Green Center for Access and Inclusion is hosting their second annual Disability Market. The market is a place to support local artists with disabilities. Nathan Sartori has all the details for you. Nathan is the Managing Director of the Disability Collective. Hey, Nathan, welcome to the show. Nice to chat with you this morning. Good morning, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So how are you and some of your uh, colleagues feeling here, the, the, the markets this weekend? What, what do the next 24 to 48 hours look like for you, Nathan? <laughs> it's a lot of preparations, you know, all uh, last minute things to do, but I think we're in a good place. We're feeling really excited for this year. Uh, it's the second annual market, so uh, uh, we're really looking forward to it and hope that folks uh, can join us this Sunday. Yeah, let's let's hop in the time machine a little bit. Last year's market was a big success. What was the response from the community? Oh, it was really great. I mean, specifically uh, from the vendors, the artist vendors, it's a really unique opportunity as, you know, uh, we remove as many barriers as possible. It's a completely accessible market. So uh, the vendors themselves were so grateful to have an opportunity to vend uh, uh, at a market um, that, that didn't have any barriers for them. Um, and then the audience members to come into a space that is accessible, is COVID safe, um, is, is truly a, a unique opportunity. And, and to have, you know, 30 artist vendors, uh, community vendors as well, uh, disabled musicians performing, it's, it's really a, a special and unique environment that we don't have uh, otherwise here in Toronto. Nathan, you mentioned the space itself. What are you doing to make the space as inclusive as possible, especially when it comes to things like navigation and interaction? 
Absolutely, yeah. So the space itself is fully uh, accessible, and that was very important to us when choosing the space. So Artscape, which would bonds, it's all on one level. Uh, it's barrier-free to enter and exit, of course. And then in terms of the space itself, we've created, uh, we've we've specifically created uh, pathways and and very open space for folks to be able to to maneuver and navigate the space. We also have uh, ASL interpreters and ASL volunteers uh, going to be there so that uh, both the deaf vendors and any uh, deaf patrons who attend are able to communicate freely and easily with everyone. We also have sighted guide volunteers so people uh, can take advantage of them to navigate the market and the sighted guides can tell you all about uh, what's going on and, and uh, assist folks, um, as well as um, we have a quiet space so that folks can take a break from the market. Uh, you know, there will be some fidget toys, there are comfy couches and that mm. sort of thing. So the space is really important to us in creating that accessible environment and atmosphere. Nathan, you rang two big bells for me right there. Number one, just knowing there's wide pathways to get around. I wish more places would think about that because it can be so overwhelming, whether mm -hmm. whether you're using a mobility device or not, just to get around a space when it's crammed all the time, right? Like, how are you supposed to relax and enjoy yourself if you're just fighting through a sea of people? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> And I like the idea of the quiet space too, because that sort of connects to the large crowd. Sometimes you just need an opportunity to get away. I know that uh, I, I skipped our company Christmas party this week, but I did do a little walk by. <laughs> I did I did a little walk by of the party, and there was like forty people in the room all crammed together, and I was like, "Yeah, no thanks." Like that does not sound relaxing or fun for me <laughs> at all. Exactly. No, I mean, the atmosphere itself is already going to be fairly relaxing. Uh, we'll have some nice, you know, chill music going on. And like I said, we've, we've incorporated all these access measures, but um, to have that quiet space is really important to us. Now, Nathan, of course, it's not a market without the vendors. Now, now I, you know, we'd be here all day if you, if you started listing off all the vendors, and then all of a sudden people <laughs> are going to accuse you of playing favorites. But what kind of vendors are going to be on the ground uh, at the event on Sunday? <laughs> Yeah, we have a lot of return vendors. So this is our second holiday market and third artisan market. Uh, so we have a lot of return vendors, but we have a lot of new uh, vendors, which is really exciting. So at the market this weekend, you'll find uh, knitwear, crochets, of course, a lot of holiday items. So you'll find ornaments, you'll find decor, you'll find... Uh, a ton of things. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we also have community vendors who will be selling food and drinks. So you're going to find uh, Lil E Coffee Cafe from Toronto, as well as Do Good Donuts. So you have a lot of yummy treats to mm, enjoy, mm. hot beverages as well. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a lot of uh, a variety at, at the market, which is, is really awesome. Nathan, you're saying so many magic words for me. Donuts, wide pathways, <laughs> like you're talking my language. December the, <laughs> December the 10th at the Artscape Witchwood Barnes. Entry is free, and for more information, visit thedisabilitycollective.com, thedisabilitycollective.com. Again, December 10th, that's this Sunday, Artscape Witchwood Barnes. Hey, Nathan. I'm, I know how busy you and your colleagues are ahead of this event. Thank you for making a little bit of time today. I hope it goes super, super well. And let's talk again down the road. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dave. Have a great day. That's Nathan Sartori. Nathan is the Managing Director of the Disability Collective. One more time, I'll give you that website, disabilitycollective.com, thedisabilitycollective.com.
Com. In one minute, Laura Bain will have the entertainment report. But first, Google is expanding its presence in artificial intelligence. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. This week, Google launched Gemini, an AI model that the company says bests OpenAI's equivalent model, GPT-4, on industry benchmarks. Gemini, according to Google, does a little bit better than OpenAI's GPT-4. Jermaine says Gemini will now power Google's chatbot called Bard, much like GPT-4 powers ChatGPT. He says Google has even bigger plans for its model. From search to its cloud organization to the Android smartphone market. Much of Gemini's core features aren't set to launch until next year, and OpenAI was already first to market. But Jermaine says Google has an ace up its sleeve. Almost everyone on the planet who uses the internet has a Google account. And the most important thing about getting a technology like an AI chatbot out is getting it into people's hands. With TechTrend, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Have yourself a great weekend. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. The Toronto International Film Festival has a program to get some features into smaller and more remote communities. Laura Bain has a bit more perspective in the entertainment report. Hey, Laura, well, what's going on here? What's TIFF trying to do? Yeah, so this is a program called Film Circuit, and it's not actually a new program. It's been running for 33 years, Ooh. although um, I had not heard of it before. But it brings independent and art house films to rural, remote, and underserved areas aka film markets across Canada. Um, so these films screen in places like libraries, small independent theaters, and community centers. And something that's pretty cool is that the sort of film circuit TIFF team, which is just two or three people, work with the local community to select a film that's going to be suited to their audience. It doesn't necessarily have to be a film that's screened at TIFF, um, but could be one from their archives. And 2024 is going to be their biggest year yet with over 100 planned stops across Canada. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Where are a few of the stops, you might ask? Well, Amherst, Nova Scotia, Fogo Island, Newfoundland, Peace River, Alberta, but also places like Fort McMurray and Oshawa. And of course, they those places would have access to more like the multiplex theaters, but not necessarily smaller independent films. And it's really great because this generates quite a bit of revenue for the distributors of these films after the film uh, festival season is open. And as I mentioned, of course, it also gives people in these communities a chance to see these films mm -hmm. that certainly wouldn't be screening at, at multiplex theaters. But I think kind of more importantly, I was thinking about, you know, gives them a chance to have that experience of a film screening and getting together in community for that. Laura, Laura, fundamentally watching movies is meant to be done on the big screen. Like no director thinks to themselves, I'm going to make this movie so you can watch it on your phone. Listen, it's great that we can, that we can watch it on a tablet or our phone or our TV at home. But fundamentally, someone who makes a movie is thinking about putting it on the big screen and they're thinking about that collective experience. And I love, love, love going to see a smaller film and seeing it on the big screen, especially with something like this, because it's so great that filmmakers are getting to expand their reach and 
and put this onto the eyeballs and ears of more people. Listen, maybe it's the more uh, art artistic folks of, uh, uh, what did you say, uh, like Hay River or, uh, or uh, sorry, I've, I've forgot, I already forgot. Uh, Peace River, <laughs> Peace yeah. River, Peace River. Hay like, River might be one of the venues. Hay, Hay, River, Hay River might, sorry, I was thinking about the North Coast Territories because of their new premiere being from, Hay, yeah. being from Hay River. But yeah, but but I think about the artistic communities in, the artistic people in these communities being served like this. So it's a win for the TIFF brand. It's a win for patrons of the arts. It's a win for local theaters. It's a win for everybody. It's a win for everybody. And yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the collective experience. I mean, in terms of the big screen, like TVs are getting bigger and bigger. So I think we have more access to that at home. Uh, now, you know, I want to mention it was in the news today that TIFF is laying off 12 employees, which is really unfortunate. Oh, and they're citing um, the pandemic and the SAG-AFRA strike, which impacted festivals, of course, because actors weren't able to attend events and promote their films. They're also losing Bell as their main sponsor. Oh, dear. So I'm not necessarily talking about TIFF here, but I think overall streaming has hurt the movie going business and it just kind of has me thinking about the contrast with the success of this film circuit program and wondering you know is the future of going to see in-person movies more in these kind of community or experienced based uh events. Oh, now you've got me pessimistic uh, sharing some of those stats and those sponsorship stuff and mm -hmm. people being laid off because yeah. I, I can only answer your question with pessimism. Even as someone who oh. loves a repertory theater, I used to love attending the Byward Cinema and the uh, Mayfair Cinema in Ottawa. Like, loved those theaters, loved supporting them, loved watching movies there. Laura, we live in a blockbuster world, and unfortunately, uh, when people are being asked to shell out 20, 25, 30 bucks to go see a movie, they're going to want the blockbusters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, I, I love this story, and I tried to express optimism, but you dragged me into the depths of cynicism. Oh, well, I'm sorry. And I certainly might not be representative of the average person. But I know for myself, I am less inclined to go see those big blockbusters because I do prefer to watch at home in terms of just accessibility. And I know that things will be owed in a couple of weeks. But the last time I actually made the effort to go see a film, it was a community event at the library. And I would have... I would have paid to go and see it. I went more for the social experience and kind of for the vibe and there was snacks. It was, you know, it was a fundraiser. So we, um, you know, purchased some items that were for sale. So I think for me, I am more likely to go if it's an event and of course, wanting to support independent filmmakers. Mm, I don't mm -hmm. have as much, I don't really care as much about supporting the blockbusters. So for me, I feel like I am more motivated and certainly event-based. We saw that with the Barbie movie that that was... <laughs> You know, a lot of what people were going out for, I think, was to dress in pink and, you know, get that photo with the, you know, the poster <laughs> in the background and their pink nail polish or whatever. I do want to give one more shout out here with positivity to wrap up the segment. Uh, the Varsity Cinema in Toronto on the top floor of the Manulife Centre, the owner and manager of that theatre takes particular pride in platforming independent films, especially independent Canadian films. So even though it's a big multiplex that plays a lot of the blockbusters, he makes the conscious decision to platform those movies, and I will, without fail, when possible, try to go see movies there, specifically because of his commitment to independent films. So there you go. We came back to positivity, Laura, before I say goodbye to you and have a nice weekend.
Thanks. You as well, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Food prices, food prices, food prices. The price increases are expected to slow down a little bit next year, but you're still going to be shelling out more at the grocery. Elizabeth Moeller wants to know how higher food prices have impacted your shopping habits. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Perhaps this is a primer to a topic that will be explored in the Year in Review news panel, but Elizabeth, there's some new data out about food prices in Canada. Yes, we can expect that food prices will slow down, but we can expect that that typical grocery bill for an annual family will be about $700 more. But hopefully savvy shoppers will still find some deals at the store, and that's from an annual food report survey. But I want to cook up some concrete examples today, Dave. <laughs> I, want to, I, want to, I want to brew up some real conversation here. So I want to ask the panel, how have food prices affected your grocery shopping and eating habits? Ramia, let's start cooking up the brew with you <laughs> thanks um i have not bought much fresh anything and my favorite thing to buy fresh is bread um and i don't know what the prices necessarily have been like but i think after i've uh decided what my own staples are in my own household, which is um, not fresh vegetables, not fresh fruit. And then thinking of fresh bread is just not an option for me anymore. So everything frozen practically at my house. Also, my my meal prepping with meat has been very, very slim. So like I used to buy meat as, a, uh, you know, every day or every meal would have meat in it. Now I've pretty much changed over to, I don't know, like chicken is once a week, if that. Oh, and chicken, is, chicken is so expensive right now. So expensive. Yeah. So yeah. expensive. And I haven't bought beef in God knows how long. That I think the last time I had beef actually like cooked it was when we did like Friendsgiving around October, which is ridiculous, right? If you think about it. Now, the one way that I haven't cut back, or at least it feels like it, is going out to eat. So I don't know right. if these things mm -hmm. are actually right. making a difference in the, you know, like the, the food spending. I have to go check like the TD My Spend app or something. But um, <laughs> yeah, in terms of grocery buying, yeah. Like even fresh dairy and eggs, I barely buy anymore. Yeah. So Nazreen, I'm in a very similar boat to Rumya. It's not necessarily, like, like I've accepted the biting of the bullet of the cost of groceries going up, but I've also been looking more at frozen fruits and vegetables, canned fruits and vegetables, just trying to find items that are not going to go to waste. Because Nazreen, that was always one of my big frustrations, mm -hmm. that when I bought the fresh fruit and veg, when I bought those, those items, even sometimes the meat, it was going bad in one or two days because my grocery store is a pathetic joke. But, but like, but, but I, but I really like that. That's where I'm at a little bit, Nazreen. It's that I'm really trying to be cognizant of buying food that's not going to go bad or be wasteful while still accepting the fact that these prices are brutal. Oh, absolutely. I do feel like I agree with you in terms of meat being so expensive. 
I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. So chicken and fish became so expensive. Oh, so yeah. I do feel of. like we've been buying more because I feel like uh, we've been going out more than buying from grocery stores and making dinner. Um, it's just, I feel like it's a lot cheaper. So in the beginning, um, a couple months ago, in the beginning of, you know, living on our own and learning what prices is good, which grocery store is good, which is not, we used to get like a lot of veggies, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of fruits and, and have that. And then a couple of weeks later, I would notice the lettuce getting brown a few and, weeks and a few weeks how about a few hours like some, sometimes yeah. i bring blackberries oh, home yeah. from the grocery store and like they're already rotting in the plastic thing yeah not yeah. even yeah. and i would get a lot and that's the problem like you know you don't know you don't understand how much of a waste all of that is i mean i had now now what i do is get just a couple of tomatoes what i need what i need for the week and see what I need for the next week because I'm I'm literally I I um we go to the grocery store I grab like two three tomatoes we're like okay it's set it's yeah. done I'm not yeah. getting any more for a week or two and we'll just kind of save that because it's crazy how fast the vegetables have gone bad squishy and I hate when a vegetable yeah. is like oh. you know like yeah, not it, it's not firm and stuff so it it is gross and and that money is being burned and I just can't understand how much money is being wasted on all of that. And I, I really wanted to start healthy. <laughs> I really wanted to start being healthy and, and, you know, like buy good and fresh food. It's just impossible. It's really impossible. Yeah, it, um, so, so important to note that frozen food by its nature is not unhealthy, right? I, I think it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's really yeah. time that as a culture and a society, we start yeah. accepting the reality that frozen food, now not all of frozen food is truly healthy, but if you do your research, frozen food is not inherently unhealthy healthy and like it's yeah. and, and again like elizabeth i think this is sort of the unanimity across the three of us right here it sounds like all three of us are just accepting the reality of you got to eat you got to spend money the food's going to be more expensive in my case i'm able to buy pork i have no religious um uh objections to eating pork and pork is really cheap so that's where one of my proteins has come from i'm also using a lot of protein powder alongside yogurt and frozen vegetables to get some of that extra protein in me as well Elizabeth, what about you? Where are you landing yeah. in regards to your shopping habits amid higher prices? Yeah, so I've made two new friends, the slow cooker and the freezer. Um, mm. So I've been doing a lot more like curries using dried beans. They can be very cheap um, and doing a lot of coconut milk um, and then those frozen veg like we talked about, but also freezing portions because I was doing those meal kits. I know we talked about this yesterday, but they, they were getting not only expensive, but wasteful from an, a climate justice perspective. So making food in the slow cooker, doing the portioning, putting it in the freezer. Um, but I think, you know, the also the other thing I've been doing is using the flip app to see where things might be cheaper. And then because I do have a subscription to a delivery service, I can get delivery from multiple stores. So I can take advantage of that a little bit. So I think that's been a huge one, but even milk, I've been buying um, stable fresh or shelf stable almond milk, which is a lot cheaper than, than the cow's milk. So just eating differently, but also thinking about ways to cook differently. And that slow cookers are really, a really good one. It's still easy. It's convenient, but you're not um, spending that money on sort of that, that pre 
pre-made food. I'm also not doing the veggie and fruit trays um, because you're paying in addition oh, to the freshness yeah. for the prep, right? Like they're, they're wonderful for a party, but you know, I'm just doing, you can still get, um, you know, things that are almost like a grab and go, but aren't a veggie tray, like tomatoes or even those mini cucumbers. So oh, mini just cucumbers. Thinking, mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. We'll have, we'll have a mini cucumber snack after the show, but yeah, no, I'm just thinking no, I'm differently chocolate after the show. Oh, chocolate. Okay. <laughs> I actually don't like chocolate. Okay. Well, that's because you're an elite athlete. Um, Elizabeth, <laughs> you gave, you gave two, you gave two plugs there. Uh, plug them again. What's the app, the flip app. And then what's the delivery service flip. you're using? Yeah. So the, the flip app is really where you can go and look at flyers. Cause uh, I don't know about everybody else. I find the accessibility of paper flyers. Really, yeah, yeah. So uh, the other one is Instacart. So I can actually go on because I have a subscription um, and I can get delivery from multiple stores. So if I see bread is cheaper at say no frills, then I will get that there and I'll get maybe my fruit at, um, you know, Walmart or wherever it's cheaper. Ah, so that's like really that. helpful. I, I know. Like I, it, yeah. Elizabeth, yeah. triple dose this week of you on the show. You're also co-hosting on Monday while I'm recovering from a Buffalo trip. Have a lovely weekend, a great show on Monday. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, Dave. Nazreen, you have a lovely weekend as well. Ramya, just before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? We've got lots coming up on the show. Also, it's myself and Grant Hardy who Ooh. are holding court down today. Yeah, exactly. So on the show, we have our app update with John Beeler, and he's talking about uh, Meta's latest AI suite translation feature. Um, apparently, it, it, it is very seamless and expressive. I'm not sure how more expressive it is than the regular AIs we're used to. But anyways, one of the greatest athletes this country has ever seen uh, retired, of course, earlier this week. And so Brock, Brock Richardson is going to talk about Christine St. Clair. Uh, he's obviously a huge fan, like a lot of us. So we'll talk more about that. And if you're looking for the perfect gift for the book lover in your family, then Ryan Huey says he's got an idea or two for you. Love it. Ramya, have a lovely weekend. Talk to you on Tuesday. Have a good weekend. That is Ramya Amuthan. She'll pick my brain all about my Buffalo trip, I'm sure. I know that nothing fascinates people more than a boys' trip to Buffalo. Coming up after the break, Greg David stops by to talk about the holiday specials that are hitting the TV airwaves. My war on Christmas is only just beginning. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Over on the digital side of things, AMI introduced AMI Plus earlier this fall. The website allows you to stream AMI original content for free, amiplus.ca. That's where you go. Greg David is a communication specialist with AMI and has a few more details to offer up for you. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning, Dave. So, Greg, I've been promoting AMI Plus uh, quite a bit here on the show. In fact, right now, there might be folks listening to the show yes. on AMI Plus in a beautiful audio format. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. It's been a few months. What's the reception been like? How are people uh, responding to AMI Plus? 
The, the reception has been great. I mean, obviously, when you launch something like this out of the gate, there's a few tweaks. So we've gotten some feedback about that from uh, some of our viewers. Thank you very much. But overall, we're really, really pleased with the with the rollout. And so now it's just all about spreading the word like you've been doing already. And the folks at Kelly and Ramya, it's about spreading the word and letting them know, everyone know about AMI Plus and, and that they should be visiting it. I know my mom was delighted when she found out that the show was available at amiplus.ca, even though she yeah. has cable. She could watch yep. me on TV, but she's like, oh, I like sewing and I like having you on in the background. Audio on AMI Plus is great. Greg, what I've noticed about the website, the ease of navigation, incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot smoother. Um, if you do have some vision, you'll notice that the screen is larger, so the player takes up the entire screen, which is fantastic. And of course, you, it's got the accessibility settings that the old website had. Uh, it's got the captions on there if you want them to. So, yeah, all around a great product. Uh, Greg, this this question, I, I hope I hope you don't feel like I'm doing some kind of corporate sabotage to you, but instinctively, I'm still firing off the words AMI.ca yep. off my tongue quite frequently. What's happening to AMI.ca? What happens when I send someone there by mistake? Yeah, so you still end up there. And yeah, that's the biggest thing, right, is getting out of that habit. So if you go to AMI.ca, the website is still there. Uh, but what happens is when you go and try to watch something on AMI.ca, you are redirected to AMI+. Plus. So you're given a warning. Well, it's not really a warning. It's more of a heads up <laughs> saying saying that you're going over to the new AMI+, Plus and that the experience is going to be fantastic over there. So that's what we've been doing. And then eventually what's going to happen uh, it come the new year is that there will be no more um, video or visual content of Available on AMI.ca, and uh, and that's where we get into the 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 next question. I guess is what's going to yeah, happen to yeah. that website? Yeah, what's going to happen to it? It's uh, switching over to corporate, so you'll be able to go there to find out, you know, things like who we are and what we do, our vision and our mission. You'll be able to find out the latest information on careers at AMI, internships and apprenticeships. But it's more the corporate side, that behind the scenes, maybe less fun stuff. Uh, so we've just decided that it makes a lot more sense to have a content website, which is AMI Plus, and then the corporate website, which is AMI.ca. Yeah, if you have a disability and are at all interested in the media business, please check out our internship and apprenticeship opportunities. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of cool folks have come out of those programs uh, working all over the network right now. I, it's, it's so cool. It's so incredible. If you have a disability and you're interested in the business, please, please, please check that out. AMI plus. No, AMI.ca. See, I can't even do it, Greg. <laughs> AMI.ca. And if you want to check out the content, AMI plus.ca and just make sure to spell out the word plus. P-L-U-S. Greg, let's talk about holiday TV specials and some of yeah. the classics here because Tis the season. As much as I've yep. been uh, holding my body against the waves of holiday programming, it's fair to say as of mid-December, it's there. It's there. It's out there. And it's probably appropriate at this point. And there's a few classics. They're going to be hitting uh, CBC uh, this weekend. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, my personal favorite, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, Frosty the Snowman, Sunday, December the 10th on CBC. Greg, what's the key to the longevity of these kinds of programs? Yeah, and actually, I'm glad that you brought those up. I want to mention one more, that the Santa Claus Parade out of Toronto is going to be on CTV tomorrow night, uh, December the 9th at 7 p.m. So I wanted to make a note of that. But that falls right in with your question about these classics. For me, and I'm sure a lot of other people listening and watching today, it's all about those childhood memories. I mean, even though these three shows that you were specifically talking about and the parade, which is over 119 years old now, it's just all about tradition. And for me, even though they were created in the 60s, I grew up in the 70s, and so it was a Christmas staple to sit down in front of the television set, 
I think it was on CBS that these all had the rights to at the time, and now they've expanded. But Christmas for me were all of these classics, and I think that's what it is. I think, think they've just become a tradition, whether they're on cable television or, or streaming services. Christmas to me are these three titles. Yeah, I, I should clarify. When I say The Grinch is my favorite, I specifically am meaning the animated one from like yes. years ago. Jim Carrey, yeah. eh, good, solid performance. My niece loves uh -huh. it. There was a, there was another remake a couple of years ago. I think it was Benedict Cumberbatch who was doing the voice on it. My niece loved that one too, but I'm still OG. I'm OG. I, I like the original. For sure. Boris Karloff, you can't do any better than that. You literally can't do any better than that. Greg, there's only about four minutes left on the clock here. So for the sake of efficiency, let's talk a little bit about holiday and Christmas movies. Because something that I find really interesting right now is sort of the one lane of the classics, right? The White, <laughs> yeah. the white Christmases, uh, maybe, uh, maybe like Miracle on 34th Street. And then the deluge of the uh, like what I'll call the Hallmark holiday style film, yeah. and I watched. I listen. I'm 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 not immune to it. I watched Xmas on Amazon Prime a few weeks ago yeah. and thought it was quite funny. Really enjoyed yeah. it. It was it was a couple hours well spent. It's really interesting now to sort of see what I would call the new trend in holiday movie contrasted with the old school of holiday movie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Elf is Elf. Uh, you know, this year. Elf celebrates its 20th anniversary as a film. So Shut it up. is actually, yeah, it is actually a, like, you could call that a classic um, Christmas movie now. But you're absolutely right. There's this deluge of the, the Hallmark Christmas movies, which have, no joke, been actually on the air since July, depending <laughs> on who your carrier is, uh, because they actually go with the advertising of Christmas in July. So I, I love them. I mean, as cheesy as they are, I love them because uh, you know what you're going to get. They've become the new comfort uh, for people during the holidays. Absolutely. And I love the fact that so many of them have been filmed like within a half an hour to an hour of my location here in the Ottawa Valley. So uh, I, I love them all. Yeah, there's one dropping uh, next weekend uh, that was filmed in the Ottawa area that my cousin was in. Uh, Greg, here's the plot line. A, uh, a local real estate developer trying to tear down a hockey arena and to save the arena, love forms and Christmas is saved. Oh, I've never heard that pitch before. It sounds so unique. I wonder if there will be a chaste kiss in the last few moments under some mistletoe, or probably at center ice. That would make more sense. I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to reveal about this, but as I've told you before, I have friends who work in the yeah. holiday in the holiday script writing uh, business. Do you know there's an actual uh, industry standard on when you're supposed to see the lead male protagonist with his shirt off? No, I didn't know that. Oh, that is so great. Yeah, there's a specific like minute range in the movie around story beats where the shirt's supposed to come off, which is brilliant. Which is brilliant. Like a totally yeah. when you talk about formulas and formulas at work, like they found one here. Absolutely, and you always have that kiss within the final moments. Those the the couple never kisses before the just before the credits roll. Greg, are you like are you are you kidding me? Are you serious that Elf is celebrating a 20 year anniversary yeah. this year? Come on, like yeah. that makes me feel so old. I know, me too. When CTV sent out the press release about it, I'm like, what? Are they punking me? I can't believe it's been 20 years. Yeah, it's incredible. But a great, great movie oh, for sure. That That's Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell was firing nothing but fire for about six years there, and Elf is yeah. certainly amongst that one. Hey, Greg, only about 20 seconds on this, but I kind of get the impression that uh, your lifestyle has led you into uh, already picking up a lot of these holiday movies. Uh, maybe sometime around uh, Remembrance Day, uh, you, were, you, were deep, you were deep in this. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Because it started even before, um, before American Thanksgiving. I just want to mention really quickly that Hollywood Suite, which is a premium channel here in Canada, offers a free pre preview of their movies, 70s movies, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. They're available for free on cable. So check those out for the next month. Oh, um, sick. And, and yeah, yeah. Check that out. Love it's, it. It's Hollywood Suite's holiday present to us. Oh, there you go. A little gift. The gifts never stop being given. Greg, have a great day. You too, thanks. That is Greg David, communication specialist with AMI. That's all the time there is for the show today. Until Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun like we do at the end of the week. Let's roll those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Mutin, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DV producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Productions, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.